Oh, good afternoon. Uh, Grace Community Church welcomes you to the Tuesday night Bible study. Glad to have you. It has been a super day. A beautiful sunshine out there on this uh, spring day and actually think uh, hitting somewhere around in the 80s. But uh, we have been having an ongoing study in the book of Joshua. We have come to chapter 10 in our study. Um, quite a, a book it is as we look at the strong and courageous Joshua as God had uh, told him to be. And uh, we saw last week in uh, Joshua 9 how the Gibeonites came into play uh, as far as uh, being the neighbor people, neighboring city uh, that would be close to the Israelites as they came into the promised land as they are conquering people. And uh, Gibeonites actually were uh, people that were called the Hivites. They were from that same clan. And they knew about all the victories that Israel had had. Joshua had led them uh, over Sihon and Og and also at Jericho and then at Ai more recently. They lost the first time, but the second time they did win that. And it definitely is known throughout all the Canaanite land. And Israel is coming in to take over that land. So, this group of people, the Gibeonites, were they said they were from a distant land, a very distant land. They knew what the Israelites were doing, and they were very fearful of them. So, what they did is they uh, encroached um, Joshua and the Israelites came up to him and said, we are from a far away land. And they wanted to show him that they were because their clothes were very old and worn out looking, sandals very old, and even the food that they had, which actually was uh, bread, they said, look at this, look how dry it is. We had heated it up when we left, and it was soft, but when we got here, it was hard as a rock. So they're trying to make every effort to show them that they're from a far land, and they don't want to be attacked. Uh, if you're outside the Canaanite land, you would be safe in that sense. But here they come. And uh, they really wanted protection, and that's why they were there. They deceived the Israelites. The Israelites said, okay, and they entered into a peace treaty, a, a covenant. They were kind of leery. They didn't really want to do it at first, but they were saying, well, if they're not really from here, um, maybe we can at least make a treaty with them. And uh, that treaty with the uh, Gideonites, uh, Gibeonites was binding. To Israel, and uh, the Gibeonites became servants as a, a result of that. They were to uh, cut firewood and to be uh, carrying water, those kind of servants from there on out. They knew that they were going to be under the wrath of Yahweh, the wrath of God. So we pick up this account in Joshua chapter 10, and we see what happens next. Israel will continue to honor the covenant they made with the Gibeonites. They will stay true to it, as God stays true to His covenant when He has it with His people. So, we'll start out in chapter 10, the first five verses. This is going to be dealing with the Amorites 
the other cities, how concerned they are when the Gibeonites have seemingly defected from them. And we're going to call this uh, title today, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Let's take the first five verses. That came about when Adonijah, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho, and its king, so he had done to Ai, and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoam, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me, and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua, and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So we have the men of Gibeon who were warriors who have seemingly defected as far as the rest of the people, especially the Amorites, were concerned. Now, Gibeon actually meant warriors, uh, and they knew that Israel's shield and defender was Yahweh. They absolutely knew that. We know that is why they made that treaty, got to make a treaty with Israel. They called upon the name of the Lord, which I believe is quite significant. They knew the true God, Yahweh. Well, to the Amorites, this was absolute treason. This would have been something that would have been a terrible thing for any neighboring city to do, kind of their, of their own people. They'd made a peace treaty. They were considered to be weak, these warriors were. They were the greatest warriors in the land. And so, it, the Canaanites have lost great soldiers in this whole deal. You can imagine how mad they were. So what Adonai Zedek, which is actually the king of Jerusalem, and this is the first time in the Bible that we see the name Jerusalem found. We don't see it before this, but we see it right here. And, as we see that they want to attack Gibeon now because they have turned against them. So the question is, is now what would Israel do? What would they do? Would they fight for the people that they have made a peace treaty with, a covenant with? What would they do about this? Well, as far as the uh, neighboring cities of the Gibeonites, they want to make Gibeon an example to the rest of the Canaanite tribes so that they wouldn't turn uh, and want a peace treaty also with the Israelites. They want to make an, make an example of anybody that defects. Here's what's going to happen. So we see a coalition. The king of Jerusalem gets together with some of the other cities there, five kings, and they all get together and attack the Gibeonites. They surround the city. It's under a siege. 
So what do Gibeonites do? Well, that's where we see in verses 6 through 9 that Gibeonites have to do something. Let's check this. In verse 6 through 9, Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the old country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands, not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. So the Gibeonites are really asking for help here. The uh, Israelites have pledged to defend Gibeon. They know that. The uh, Amorite coalition has moved against Gibeon. And it's like the... Gibeonites are scared because they have five kings coming up against them. And they say something like, don't relax your hand, which means don't abandon us. Please give us some help. We need you now. It was a very serious time. And so Joshua actually takes immediate action. He takes and helps defend the the Gideonite army and the whole city. And it shows that there's a blessing that has come from Yahweh in this whole time that God has promised that they would take all the land of Canaan. So the blessing is there. Joshua and his army go marching to Gibeon and where he will defend the Gibeonites. It's quite significant as uh, Joshua is swift. He has a determined action here. All of Canaan has to be watching with what is going to go on. Is Israel really going to help the Gibeonites out? Is that really going to happen? Will they fight for their new servants? Well, the five kings have a very strong, formidable army that they put into battle. And the Gibeonites are asking, uh, wow, did we do the right thing in making a covenant with Israel? But they knew who the true God is. And that's the whole point. So we go into our third section. And it's about Joshua and his army just routing completely the Canaanite coalition of the five kings. We find that in verse 10 and 11. And the Lord confounded them before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Megiddo. As they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Aram, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Here we have God fighting for the Israelites. They are in action, and they are doing it, but yet God is helping tremendously. He's doing more than helping. He's winning this battle. 
So the five kings are thrown into a panic, it says, uh, scared to death. It's like they tuck their tail between their legs and take off. They are on the run. They go as far as uh, 20 miles, something in that area. Joshua has had a surprise attack, has come in the night uh, and unexpectedly, and in big forces. And so there's an overwhelming that the Israelites do here as they, they kill them, they're on the run, and God gets all the credit here. Joshua, with his wisdom, and his men, who have strength to fight this battle, they marched all night. And we also see something that's rather remarkable, something that we had here a couple of weeks ago with a pretty big major hailstorm. And I'm sure if you were to talk with the people that were involved in that, many cars got damaged, windshields, windows broken out, homes got uh, roofs just blasted. And it was a horrible hailstorm. The biggest one that I've ever heard of in the town that we live here. So, they and they were like uh, bigger than golf balls. Some had pictures of that were like softballs. So major damage. But I want to tell you, this hailstorm would have even been more tremendous. I know in Revelation, God will rain down 100 pound hailstones in the future, just before he comes back. Reminds you of that. Anyway, we can definitely see God has his hand all the way through this battle and all the other battles. It's an amazing victory. No one in Canaan would uh, remember Ai as far as the Israelites when they lost the first battle. They would remember what is happening right at this time now. It was just stunning. And of course, Yahweh, the Lord, is the shield. He's the defender of His people, not only the Israelites, but all those who trust in His promises. He's our shield. He's our defender. At all times, His promises are always good. Now, we go on to verse 12 through 15. And this is a monumental uh, miracle that happens at this time. The hailstorms, another thing, comes from God. Some people would say, that's just nature. But not as big as these hailstorms. And we see a major victory here. So, let's read verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ahilon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel, then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp to Gilgal. This is a major victory, but this miracle is amazing. Did the earth really stop rotating for 24 hours? Did that really happen? Well, uh, 
I don't think it is in a figurative way that Joshua is speaking here. Joshua prayed here that there would be a dramatic sign. It says in verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon and O moon in the valley of Ahilam. Anyway, God does what Joshua asked. It's like the sun stopped, if we can put it that way. There's never been a day like this before or after. It's the only time it ever happened. An incredible thing. And we see the Lord intervening supernaturally, providing enough light at night and all through the day. The Israelites were able to march there all night and to completely defeat the enemies before the next evening. So all the way through until the evening was done, there was light for the Israelites to do what they did. Uh, this is a cosmic sign of some sort of visual uh, uh, vision in the valley of uh, Ahilon at night. It extends daylight over Gibeon long enough to win this battle. And so they could do it all in one shot. Because they came in surprising and the army was overwhelmed. They had no idea that they were there. And whenever they were able to continue on and win that battle in the way that they did and in that particular time, all the way into the next evening, is a long day. It's clear that God is watching over the Israelites. And it's clear to the Canaanites that Yahweh was fighting on the side of Israel. The Gibeonites are also in on that as they have covenanted with Israel. It says another one here too, and that was a great miracle. It really does. A lot of people know about that. It is very controversial and people will come up with uh, human understandings and ideas naturally rather than supernatural. But God can do what he wants and he helps Israel throughout that many times. Many times the nation of Israel has had help from God in a supernatural way. We see it through the Old Testament time and time again. Another interesting uh, uh, thought here is in verse 13, at the end of 13, as it says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? And we would say, where's the book of Jasher? Well, you'll find it in the Old Testament. And that's the idea of it. It is a book that is would be considered secular in the sense that it's not a biblical count, although there are some things, some content that is found in Scripture, uh, in Samuel, Second uh, Samuel. We'll look at that in a moment. But um, what Joshua is doing here is that he's saying, hey, I wrote it, this is Scripture, but I know that's going to be hard for you to believe that the sun did go down. When it should have, it stayed up the whole time. Well, when you add another source, and these days you can read Bible to people and give them scriptures, and it's not good enough for them. But if you tell them historically, it was written also by secular people, not a biblical account, then all of a sudden it's good. 
So he says, hey, I'm not telling a lie here. This was also written by somebody else here. Uh, an impartial witness, maybe we could say. So it's significant what is described here. It's lost to us as far as the book is concerned. We don't have that book. I know you like to go to a bookstore and look for the book of Jasher, but it is not there. But let's look in Second Samuel chapter 1, and a few years, actually, probably a few hundred years later, after this, in Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 18, we see the book of Jasher mentioned. Um, through 19, 19 through 27 is an account there. Um, in 18, he's, he's talking about oh, your beauty, oh, Israel is slain in your high places. In verse or 19, in 18, he says, He told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So it is mentioned also here in 2 Samuel. From 19 through 27, I'm not going to read all those, but it's dealing with a poetic collection of Israel's wars. And one of them is mentioned right here in 2 Samuel. It's a poetic collection. It was uh, probably a, a song in some senses dealing with the wars that Israel had. And of course, uh, as it was written back at the time of Joshua, we see that that was quite a battle. And that day the sun stood still was not only in, written in Joshua, but also was written in the book of Jasher. So, so much for that. But he wanted to give credence to what he was saying to something that really would be um, difficult for people to believe. And it still is. But I believe it definitely happened in that way. Now, the next section is dealing with the kings. Many people have been killed. There are five kings that don't get killed immediately. Uh, the armies had fled as far as Makeda, many miles from the original battle. They were on the run from the Israelites. The kings went into hiding, got into a cave, and they hid out there. There's not going to be any mercy to these guys, to these Amorites. The Israelites are going to take care of that. And of course, uh, you have to be amazed at the power of God all the way through here. And some of the ones who didn't get killed as they went back to their cities, they realized that the power of God did this. They no longer talked negatively against the Israelites and the Israelites God. All five of the kings were captured alive and they're trapped inside that cave as it's being guarded and of course the, uh, the big stone is rolled up against it. It's now clear that the Gibeonites made a good decision in the sense that they made a peace treaty with the Israelites. Um, 
we see that that was uh, very wise. And we realize also that the kings are not going to have a chance. Uh, there's going to be a placing of the foot. If you go on to verse 24, when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. This is to the Israelites. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward Joshua struck them, put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day, struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So there we have it. Um, total destruction there that the Israelites brought upon the enemy. And we have a covenant God fighting for His people. They're completely defeated. And this is the ultimate humiliation whenever we see the words that they, the feet were put upon their necks. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 15. That means total victory and total humiliation to the ones who have been beaten. In 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks of Christ. Whenever He comes back, and when He comes back, we get the same kind of picture. Let's read that. For He must reign, it's in verse 25 through 27, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is, expe he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. This act here of subjugation by Joshua, when Israel defeats those five Amorite kings, it was anticipating the day when Jesus would come back and defeat His enemies totally. And the ultimate enemy is death. And He will destroy that. And these wicked nations and kings that the Israelites have to destroy, God had given them years and years to repent, but they never did. They were wicked and they were evil. And sin has to be judged. It has to be destroyed. Our own sin needs to be destroyed to fight the sin, the temptations that come against us. So there is this spiritual aspect of that. Joshua knows that Israel's victory and this dramatic sign from the Lord is quite an important lesson for Israel to learn. 
that Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. And we've seen that all throughout Joshua we have. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 9. Be strong, be courageous. And there he is. And there's the Israelites. And he keeps encouraging them. And God is always saying to us, be strong and courageous. Defeat our enemies, our enemies of sin. What do we get out of this? It's quite a battle. Quite a victory. Physically happened. The main point that we get out of the text that we want to stress today is that God always keeps His promises. He's promised to bless those who bless Him and to curse those who curse Him. People who followed Him, such as the Israelites here, and even the Gibeonites, who knew who the true God was, as they were mediated through Joshua in a covenant. These people are blessed. And we see that remarkable victory, a remarkable sign as the sun and the moon stood still in such a way to give Israel enough light to be victorious. And so God does for us. Rejection of Him results in absolute humiliation. As the Amorites went down to total defeat, totally humiliated, these men heard the same news that the Gideonites had heard. They knew about the true God, the true Yahweh. They knew about it, but they opposed the Israelites. They opposed God. And God made them a footstool for the feet of His people. God will do that again. He always does that. But it will be seen in its ultimate way when He comes back. Here's the good news for us, for all who are believers. Regards, he regards each one of us as obedient. Now we battle sin and we can be disobedient. And we are. But when he looks at us through the righteousness of Christ and his obedience, we see that God sees obedience because of the person of Christ it's in Him. And we get the blessings of God. Israel's invasion and conquest of Canaan secured the very promised land that God had promised for hundreds of years. And the Canaanites are slaughtered here. They're slaughtered all the way through. They didn't do what the Gibeonites did. They didn't repent. They did not trust in Yahweh. And while the Gibeonites saw the light, Adonai, um, uh, Zedek of Jerusalem, did not see the light of Yahweh. You know, this is all a dress rehearsal, if I can use it in those kind of terms, because this is what's going to happen before the time of Christ. All the kings of the earth will be fighting against the Lamb of God, Lamb of God opens the seals. He opens all the seals up just before He comes back. And all those who have rejected Him and waged war against Him, they'll be hiding in caves, hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. 
and they too will be destroyed. And the way that these Amorites were, Canaanites, as the Israelites battled them. You see, Joshua was a figure, a type of Christ. As a matter of fact, the two names are synonymous. Joshua is Yahashua. Jesus' name in the Hebrew is Yeshua or Yahashua. Same name, really. God saves. He, Jesus, Yeshua, is the greater Joshua. And he will place his foot upon the necks of the enemies as he conquers the greatest enemy. You know what the greatest enemy is? It's death. And as he secures blessings for all of his people, because he's made a covenant. The covenant means all of his promises will come true in every way. Well, so much for our passage in Joshua today. We want to thank you for joining us. And you will be here welcome on Tuesday nights or whenever you want to tune in. But uh, we're thankful for you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this great, awesome covenant God. One who's made a promise. And no matter what we do, this great God has mercy, has grace, has love. It's extended all the way through eternity. And we find our righteous acts, our obedience, is not in ourselves, but it's in the person of Yeshua, Yahashua, the one who saves, the one who promises. And we praise you, Lord, for this great promise here indeed. As we look back in history of what you did physically, you were also doing spiritually. And here today, you have done it with us and continue to do it. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.